Welcome to The Leadership Mind. I'm your host, Massimo Bacchus. This show is about the stories, assumptions, and perspectives that either create or block our ability to lead. In this podcast, we'll speak with those that are in the arena, the leaders themselves. By trade and training, I'm a leadership coach and facilitator with a relentless curiosity for helping people, teams, and organizations thrive in pursuit of making their vision and purpose a reality. The goal is to bring you new insights, perspectives, and practices to help you lead authentically, navigate your career intentionally, and grow high-performing teams successfully. My hope is that in these episodes, you will witness humility, where we celebrate our failures as much as our successes. Curiosity, where we share wisdom and insights openly. And community, where we grow together. Let's explore the leadership mind. Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Leadership Mind. I'm your host, Massimo Bacchus, and today I'm joined by Dr. Joanna Boganis. And she is recognized as a leader and expert in management and leadership development. She has her PhD in adult education, and she discovered her interest in focusing on that through uncovering her own challenges as a manager in the workplace and focusing on how to build more emotionally intelligent leaders. She is also the author of Choose to Be a Leader Others Would Want to Follow, which I think is a brilliant, brilliant question because fundamentally that is the role of a leader. Joanna, it's so wonderful to have you here and thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Massimo. I was looking forward to this conversation. Absolutely. This is a great way to close out the week. Mm -hmm. So I like to start all of these conversations with people's origin stories, how they got into this work, how they became passionate and curious and developed their own expertise in leadership, which is quite possibly one of the most elusive topics. And that's why forever and more, there will always be more and more books written about leadership. We haven't quite cracked the nut on it. But what was your origin story that got you to this? Like when you were growing up as a young girl, was this something you aspire to do? No. <laughs> Actually, you know what I wanted to do? I mean, first I wanted to be an actress. But that's another podcast episode. But <laughs> I think in some ways I love giving keynotes and being on the stage comes from that, you know, loving to entertain people and engage them and get them to explore concepts like through the art form of acting, I guess. But when that dream didn't come true, I decided I wanted to become a marriage family therapist because my fundamental purpose and I always say that as a leader, like when you're going to get promoted, know why you want to be a leader. But my purpose is to make a positive difference in other people's lives. And so I thought psychology is the way to go, right? I was going to become a counselor, a therapist, and, and I wanted to work with families because I liked systems. I believe we all live and function in a system. And if you don't consider the system we live in and you only focus on the person, you're never really getting to the root cause of the issue. And you're never really going to support that individual in being successful if the system around them doesn't change, you know, so if they can't change the system, then what can they do to thrive in a different kind of a system? So I, I just liked the marriage family element of it because of that. But then after, you know, I did my bachelor's in psych and my master's was in educational psychology, and I got exposed to group therapeutic techniques. So designing programs for groups of people. And I thought, well, that still aligns with marriage family therapy, because you can have like group therapy for families, for mothers, right? So sure. I thought, oh, and I love 
the whole research and theories around group design, group development, group theories, because it was very, to me, systems-based. So I learned how to design programs. And from that, I learned all of these different theories and models on learning and development from like the cognitive to the social behavioral. And so I started to really embrace and appreciate program design and development, always with the therapeutic mindset and approach. But then after working nonprofits for many years and not ever feeling like as a young woman, you know, who's single, having any kind of financial stability, because it was like year to year, they never knew if they could continue to fund my positions. And I thought it's just too precarious for me and I need more stability. And I came across uh, a police organization that was looking for somebody to design training for recruits. And I thought, well, it's the same skill set, but like very different. I was like, oh, okay. For police recruits. Yes. Yeah. Police organizations. Yep. And so I said, okay, I'll put my name and I got the job. So for six months, I was like, what am I doing? I have no idea what I'm doing. And so I focused on recruit training, like all the hard tactics skills, officer safety skills, investigation. And then slowly, they expanded my portfolio to include supervisor training and leadership development. And that was fascinating. So we partnered with a university and I got to work with people who are experts in that field and got to co-design these leadership programs for the men and women in the law enforcement organization I worked for, which was Calgary Police Service at the time. And I loved it so much. So I invested in my own development to continue to understand, like, you know, what does it take to be a leader? And that's when I started to get into a new kind of a system, learning organizations. And how does that enhance our ability to develop our leaders to be very effective? And so eventually I left that organization. I went to go work for the government of Alberta and continued in this journey around leadership development with that focus. I became the manager of organizational learning and development. And I worked for what was called a mega ministry. There was about 7,000 people in this ministry because we had justice and law enforcement in one ministry. Okay. And my team was put in charge of developing a leadership program for the supervisors and managers across the whole ministry. And at that time, I had made the decision to go back and do my PhD because as I was getting promoted, I was like, I found myself similar to like when I was developing programs for Calgary Police Service. Like the first few months, I had no idea what I was doing and I thought they'd made a mistake in hiring me. And when I became a formal manager, I had some stints as a supervisor, frontline supervisor in other organizations, but they were so small and it wasn't like being a manager in a large scale complex organization and serving a ministry of 7,000 people. And it was really overwhelming. And I felt like I was drinking out of a fire hose. I was like, I design leadership training. Why am I having a hard time applying these concepts? Yeah. And yeah, what was ahead. so challenging for you, Joanna, when you first stepped into the management position for the ministry? Where did you find the challenge? Was it just in the discomfort or were you actually struggling with certain practices? And how do I actually go about practicing what I teach? I felt confident that I could do it. And I could do it well, although I was a little nervous, obviously, you know, I was taking on a new team that honestly, they had been labeled as problematic. And I don't like that when organizations do that, right? So you're going into a situation that nobody actually wants to be a manager of this team. And so there was nerves associated with that. But where the real problem came from was no support. It was like, so I walked into work and it was like a mausoleum. No one was there to greet me. Everyone was locked in their offices. I literally thought I was in a funeral home. And I went up to one person who wasn't locked in an office. And I said, hi, you know, my name is Joanna. Today's my first day. What? I didn't know you were starting today. (sighs) All right. I guess I'll find an office for you. It's supposed to be for somebody else, but there it is. I didn't even have a keyboard. I had a desktop and a screen, a monitor, and no keyboard. I'm I'm supposed to like telepathically put the words (laughs) on the screen. I didn't know where to park my car. I got lost in the parkade. 
and I couldn't get out. It was a horrible day. And the week and the month preceding, it was like that. I had to put together a whole budget and I had no idea where any of the information was because nobody showed me what the shared drive and all where I could find the information. I was drinking out of fire hose. People just assumed I could be airdropped in and magically I would figure out what I was doing. So I knew I had the skill set and I had the confidence, but when there was no support, zero. And that was the expectation I would succeed in this. That was a different ball game for me. And it was very frustrating. And that's what made me start to doubt myself even more that I could do this. Because I'm like, maybe this is normal. Maybe I should be okay with this. Why am I the only one who's having a problem, right? These were the things that were going through my mind. Yeah. And what was the size of the team, the troubled people that you uh, yeah. took on? I think at that time we had about six people. And then immediately I lost one person. Like she basically came in and gave me her resignation. I had another woman who wanted the position, didn't get it. I was doing my PhD at the time. She walks into my office. She goes, here, I saw this article. I thought you'd be interested in it. And the article said, why getting a PhD is a waste of time. <laughs> then I had another person reporting to me who at the time I didn't know was sexually harassing me behind my back and making comments about the size of my breasts to my male manager colleagues. Like it was a nightmare. That was my team. Yeah. And no wonder your confidence may have been shook a little bit under those circumstances and that, yeah. you know, the Island of Misfit Toys. Yeah. So no yeah. operations in place, no systems in place. And the people were a mess and passive aggressive towards you stepping into this role of leadership. Yeah. And I have a lot of appreciation and respect for those individuals. And I always like to think that everyone has potential in them, but it's hard to develop a relationship with people who you know are behaving in ways that they don't have your best interest in mind. And that's what I was seeing from them. And I'm like, what have I done to these individuals for them to approach me like this in the first month that I'm here? Trust needed to be built fast. And operationally, I wasn't prepared to succeed while I'm dealing with a bunch of interpersonal psychological issues. So what did you do? Yeah, good question. So, I mean, I'll let you know, over time, I found out my experience wasn't unique. A lot of people I spoke to experienced this, especially women, because I worked in a male-dominated organization, and a lot of the women I spoke to felt this, very isolated and alone. We don't have the same support system and network and mentors that are accessible to us like our male counterparts. And we have to deal with misogyny and harassment, which is what I was dealing with too, you know? It's like the job's hard enough as it is. I was trying to deal with a culture that I felt like was attacking me, but that I was put in place to deal with. So what did I do? Yeah. So I did what I, I always thought was the right thing to do is to start building trust because that was obvious, did not exist. Like whoever was in my shoes before me didn't do a good job and shrink trust existed. So when I came in, it just didn't exist. So I started to spend time with each of them individually to get to know them and be open to whatever they had to share with me and try not to take it personally, right? So just to try to build trust like that. And if they were being passive aggressive, to call it out in a confident and calm way about like, I'm observing this, tell me more about why that is, you know? Having conversations with people about their performance when it was, a little, I don't want to say destructive, but dysfunctional and didn't contribute to a positive culture. So I had to build trust while simultaneously holding people accountable to certain behaviors while doing all the HR stuff you need to do, like documenting, 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 things like that. So that's what I did. And I said, stay true to yourself. Like know your purpose to make a positive difference in people's lives. Let that guide you. And eventually things will start to change. And I said to myself this, and give it six months. If I don't see any change or improvement and I myself ain't feeling better, then I'm out because I'm not going to destroy my mental health and well-being over this. Like I almost ran over a pedestrian like first week I was there, like, cause I was so in my mind around how am I going to survive another day that I wasn't paying attention to the road. I'm like this six months girl, give it your best. 
You're not a quitter. See what happens. And things started to shift. So one person quit. One person went on a long-term leave because they were dealing with a lot of psychological issues and life home issues that I made it very clear to them that I was there to support them if they needed leave of absence. But the workplace wasn't a place for them to work through their psychological issues. Like we don't have that capacity. We're not therapists, nor is this a place where you can come and not work and just visit people in their offices to talk about your issues. Like we need to come and work. Like I had to hold people accountable while being compassionate. And eventually the team I ended up with was a team that was engaged and ready to work. So I spoke to my boss, who's the executive director, and I said that functionally, the way that this team is set up, we don't have a good structure. So we did a bit of reorganization. So I had to look at the system. I had to look at the operations, the structure, the processes. And while I was building relationships with people, holding them accountable, I started to rejig the organizational structure to make us more efficient in regards to what we were supposed to actually be doing. We were doing a lot of stuff we weren't supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Like it, what, like we were doing long-term disability. We're organizational training and development. What do we have to do with long-term disability or retirement leaves, right? So I'm like, that goes out, this stays in. And so there were some lateral moves that happened. And then I ended up with a team after six months that were ready there to work. We were clear what we were supposed to do. There was still some work that needed to be done, obviously, to get some more clarity, but we were well on our way. And then I was in my happy place. Then that's when things started to go really well and I flourished. But that for six months was like... Yeah. Good learning. Yeah. What were some of your biggest doubts during that time? So here's an example. I had one employee who came in because we were trying to be compassionate and support him through his issues and the trauma he was experiencing at home. While also like holding him accountable to some of his behaviors in the workplace. And we're trying to do it in a very patient and compassionate way, but sometimes people are not very self-aware. And he lost it one day and he came in and I wasn't even in the office that day. I heard about it after he walked. He came in, he was just throwing things around like he was explosive. That's not a safe environment for people to see somebody come in explosive, throwing things around. And then he, he left like a tornado came in. You know, destroyed a bunch of things and walked out. And and so I came in and I'm like, what do I do? Do I hide in my office and be like, people hopefully will forget this happened? This is where I felt like I wasn't equipped. I had never dealt with anything like this. That explosive, that raw, that anger, like, and I wasn't there to witness it either. So I walked in and found out that this had happened. And so, oh, I was scared. I was like, okay, you're there to make a positive difference in people's lives. You do it through building trust, connecting with people. What do you do? Call a meeting bring everyone in immediately, as soon as possible, address it. And that's what I did. And I was afraid that people thought I was crazy for doing that because the role models that I had, they weren't very positive role models. They, they wouldn't have addressed it. They would have just let it be, you know? So I brought everyone in and I said, I heard this is what so-and-so did. It's not acceptable behavior. Everyone has the right to come here and feel safe. So I want to touch base with each of you to see how you're feeling. And if you're not feeling safe, what can I do to support you so you can get that level of safety that you need? And then I'll tell you what we're doing in our end to make sure that doesn't happen. And also that we're doing our best to make sure that so-and-so is okay. Because that's another thing too. Like mm-hmm. trauma manifests itself in really dysfunctional ways sometimes. And what we see is anger and explosive behavior. There's so much hurt and pain there. So he also deserved to be treated like a human being. So And they cared about him. So I wanted them to know that we were watching for him as well as much as we could. And they just opened up and they shared. Oh, I'm getting goosebumps. Yeah. It was yeah, a long time too. ago. It was a long time ago. And they were just sharing about how they felt and that they were ultimately concerned about him. They were okay. They didn't like seeing him like that, but they were okay. And they were just concerned about him. And then I said, I'll touch base with you one-on-one. And then I will be here for you anytime that you need. And going back to that woman that shared that article about why getting a PhD is a waste of time. 
she started coming around after that day. We were in a workshop together and she saw that the facilitator had something I'm like, we need that. And she went and bought it for me and gave it to me. And I was like, I think she started to see that I was legit and that I wasn't blowing smoke up people's asses when I said, I actually care about you and I'm here to try to make things better for everyone. I think she started to see that when I took that risk and did that, I had no idea what, how it would turn out. But it turned out well. I learned something very valuable. Go with your gut, follow your values and your purpose. And at the end of the day, put people first because they want a leader who can do that. Joanna, that is an amazing story. And it must have taken a tremendous amount of courage on your part, being new with all of the uncertainty around you, an unprecedented situation for you in your career, and to lean into it head on and say, I'm going to show up in the way that I would want someone to show up for me because it's the right thing to do and not the easy thing to do. Yeah, it's true. It's not the easy thing to do, but it's the right thing. Thank it's you. It's the right thing to do. For you, it seems like you have an inner strength and wisdom that drives you to rise to the most challenging situations and a curiosity and empathy that hurt people hurt people, that trauma manifests in different ways and that the workplace is, as much as we would like to say that it is protected from that, the workplace consists of people and people bring their baggage. Mm -hmm. Where in your life did you develop that wisdom and that courage and that knowing to persevere in those times? I think it goes back to my background in psych. You know, they say there's two reasons why people go into psychology. I don't know if you've ever heard it. Like we have a helping complex, like we want to help people or we're so screwed up. We want to know what's wrong with us. Yeah. So we go into psych to discover that. And I got to say, honestly, for me, it was a bit of both. Like I had experienced trauma in my life as a kid and as a teenager. And I had a horrible time in school. I, would, I was labeled as special needs. I felt like I was misunderstood as a child and as a teenager. And, and so when I went into psych, I think a lot of it was I wanted to help people who maybe experienced some of the things that I had experienced and I didn't know how to help people. I thought, I thought learning about psychology, I could discover that. And I learned something really powerful. I, I can almost remember to the day was a class on motivation. And so you must hear, you know Carol Dweck, another guy is called Richard Eldeci. He's a theorist on self-determination theory. And so we learned all these different theories around motivation, the growth mindset, the fixed mindset, taking risks, safety, comfort zone of uh, comfort and all that kind of stuff. And I started to discover that at the end of the day, my success is truly dependent on my effort. That potential is not something you're born with, that it's something you can develop. And what makes you successful is the belief that you have in yourself and then taking action to make that happen and being okay when you screw up being okay when you screw up and not letting that stop you from going forward. I think that's why I love Carol Dweck's work because she almost took like all of these theories that I learned and put it into a concept and wrote a book about it. It was just so easy to absorb and process. So I started to practice those philosophical or, you know, psychological concepts in my own life. And I started to realize that I could actually do great things and break free from the stigma or the label that had been put on to me as a kid, and that I could actually succeed and be very successful in life. And so I started to realize trauma doesn't define you. Don't write yourself off because of these experiences. You can grow from them. And so I started to try new things, do new things, and I started to achieve success. And I guess in some ways, I started to rewire my brain a little bit around new ways of being that were really, you know, supported through new ways of thinking about myself. Yes. You know, honestly, Massimo, I think sometimes I left Montreal because as much as I was succeeding, breaking free from the stereotypes that had been put onto me, it's still very, people saw me through that lens. And I was so frustrated with that. I was like, the only way that I can fulfill my potential is to leave the system I'm in. I love my parents and I love my friends. They represent a small part of the system. There was other systems that I was in and I needed to get out of that system to see what I could do. And so coming to Alberta and being on my own for a while, I got to really then grow and spread my wings. Yeah. I mean, I'm a fundamental believer that our purpose, that our potential is only revealed through experience. Mm-hmm. 
And experience doesn't come easy, right? You have to persevere. You have to continue to push forward. You have to continue to strive. But that's only when you have enough experience that it actually reveals itself. What is the potential there? What is your purpose? What is that thing that you're magnetically called to do that you feel like this is the right spot for me? This is where I can have the greatest contribution. And far too often, people give up before they find that. And they think that it's that I don't have potential or they get stuck in systems or those beliefs that were put upon them at an early age. I mean, your story resonates with me in a very deep way. Joanna, I was diagnosed with dyslexia at age five, special needs class. And many of those were systems that I was put into it that I didn't choose. And to be able to break out of those and reframe them and set up new systems and what is new possibilities, new frameworks for thinking and what it's like to be an author. In hindsight, you can look at these things and be tremendously grateful for the experience. And yet, if I were to ask you, would you wish that on anyone else? You'd say, of course not. I don't want I wouldn't wish these challenges on anybody else. That's true. But there is so much to be grateful for in the challenge. And it reminds me of Amor Fati, the Latin phrase about, you know, being with our fate, that like our fate is a gift, right? Mm -hmm. And that all of these experiences, good or bad, are a gift. And for you to sit here and say with poise and confidence and grace that you are successful in your life is not just indicated by the external factors, but it is a juxtaposition because you also know what struggle is like. Mm-hmm. And it makes it a much more rich experience when we find success and purpose. Absolutely. Oh, that's so well said. Well, I thank you for sharing like that part of your story because thank I you. think it's so important. And I think it's important for people to share that part of the story, especially when they're in positions of keynote speaking and being an author and you know being in a position of, oh, look at this person, they're lauded, they have it all figured out. But to recognize that like that came from time under experience, challenge, perseverance, and a belief in self. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And getting feedback from others around how I was doing. Because sometimes oh, yeah. we can be so hard on ourselves. Either we overestimate how great we are, we underestimate it. And I'm not What's the type of person. Oh, I underestimate. Always yeah. underestimate. You know, I say we all need a mentor who's a challenger and a champion. I do a lot of work with women who work in male-dominated industries, and we always tend to forget what our strengths are. So I'm like, we all need that champion. But as soon as you decide to become a formal leader, you need a challenger because we have an unconscious bias. And when we make decisions based on that unconscious bias, obviously we're not aware of it. That's when we can get into trouble and negatively influence other people. And so I'm not immune to that. I like to think I'm great, but I also underestimate the positive impact I can have. But I try to stay humble by getting feedback because I think I could always do better too. Yeah. But you err on the side of humility. You err on the side of needing more of a champion than a challenger, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. 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 Because I think I'm my own challenger in many ways. Like my husband tries to remind me, like, stop being so hard on yourself. Yeah. I'm, I challenge myself all the time because I'm so afraid that I'll get arrogant at some point. So I always try to stay humble, you know? Also, we can't always be too humble. It's okay to value your strengths and talk about them openly. And I think I do that well, but I also think I'm a little bit too hard on myself. Your book, it's on self-compassion. I think I can practice that a bit more. It's been a game changer for myself and so many of my clients, you know, whether they know it or not. I don't typically lead with, hey, we're doing a practice in self-compassion today. Yeah. But what they are learning is a practice in self-compassion. And when we can get to a place where we love ourselves, meaning who we were and who we are today, because sometimes who we are is, is the person in the past that we were running away from or that we didn't want to be anymore or that we wanted to grow out of being that person, but we didn't have that experience yet. But we're still that person. That's still a part of our history and our life story. And we we want to love that person as much as we can love ourselves today. Right. And what I found that in that, I and others are able to be both the champion and challenger for themselves, because I agree with you, we do need mentors and coaches in our lives that can be 
champions and challengers. But we need to be very careful that that doesn't come from a place of validation seeking mm -hmm. or proving that my self-criticism is right. Yes. Right? If I have a healthy balance of confidence and humility, then the feedback that I receive can be received without defensiveness. And I can be yes. open to it because I believe in myself still. And when I'm praised, I can hold that lightly and not let that sink in too deep. Right? Yes, yes, yes. When you get praise, you value it so much because you know it comes from such an honest place from the other person. And you're like, you, I accept that, like, what's it called again? I forget. There's like a, a special gift that you get from somebody, let's say an elder or, you know, someone in your culture that's older and wise and they, it comes from their heart and an area of wisdom and, and you hold it in your heart with a lot of respect and appreciation. Anytime somebody gives me any kind of accolades, that's how I try to receive it. Appreciation is it's such a key thing that you just said. Because when you receive a generous comment, an acknowledgement that someone is just saying, I see you in your wisdom or the value, or you've, you've helped me in some meaningful way, that is them seeing you. And mm -hmm. I think all we can do in return to be truly appreciative is to see them back. Yes. February was a bit of a tough month for me. It's cold here and days are yeah. short. And my pet had to euthanize him. It was just a sucky oh. one. Yeah. And he was my homework buddy. So it was yeah. a big loss. And I'm sorry and, to hear and that. Thank you. And then I got an email from a participant that was a bit of a gut kick because it wasn't even done in the spirit of improvement. It was just kind of like an email. She didn't even acknowledge my name. It was like, I don't like this, this or that. And I was like, oh, okay, which is, I need to know because we need to improve. Could you have said at least, hi, Joanna? <laughs> You know, did, did it have to be so harsh? So I was like, oh my God, I suck at what I do. I'm not doing good. It's not resonating with my participant. I, I'm always hard on myself. I try to take feedback and the way that it's presented to improve, but sometimes I just I absorb it and I internalize it too much. So I got this email this week from another participant of mine because I, I posted something on for Women's International Day about what woman power is and what woman strength is. And she wrote back to me, you are one of the strongest women I know. And she talked about all the things that I did to help her. And I was like, I wrote back to her after I, you know, wiped the tears off. Of, <laughs> I got very mm -hmm. emotional. I told her, you made me emotional. I value what you said. Acknowledge that I think she's also strong. But I said this to her. Acknowledge that I had a hard month and what she said was so important to me and that she helped me fill my cup because I was trying to find inspiration to keep doing what I do. And she helped me renew that. And then I said to her, you make a positive difference in people's lives. You made a positive difference in my life today. And so you're one of the strongest women I know and I value you. So it was just, it was a nice interaction. I have a folder that's called the feel good folder. And so I put things like that in that folder. So I guess, what do you think? Practicing self-compassion sometimes when we're all alone and we're feeling low is to maybe reflect on some of the things that people have shared with us that's made a positive difference in their lives. Is that one way? Absolutely. To be seen positively by other people when you're having a hard time seeing yourself that way can be a reminder, especially when we're being hard on ourselves. It's very easy to list off all the things that validate that point. Let me think of all the reasons why I'm not a good person or I'm not smart enough or I'm not talented enough. We can easily pick up on those things. But to be reminded of, well, what are all the examples of why you are and how you have had a positive impact and that you are worthy, that you are capable, uh, that you are enough. In fact, I'd never even thought of that. And I have one of those folders too, Joanna, oh, but I've never connected the dot. I think that's a fantastic idea. And it's not a matter of giving yourself a pass. You know, your idea of having a challenger and a champion is a model of self-compassion. What are the things that we can do to be a challenger for ourselves? Sometimes you're feeling a bit low. Yeah, maybe go and um, chill on the couch for a little bit, but don't let that turn into the whole weekend. Yeah. You know, the challenger has got to step in at some point and say, okay, like, all right, you've had a little bit of downtime. 
maybe you're not ready to get back in the game, but you got to get up and move, go for a walk. You know, yes. you got to eat something healthy as opposed to, you know, eat the slice of pizza. It is not about giving ourselves a pass. It's not about self-pity, but it is recognizing that we're human. And one of the biggest fallacies from my point of view is that when we get into positions of leadership, we are allotted, we are put on pedestals, we are put at the top of the pyramid, we are given titles of authority, we rank our authority based on how big our team is. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to leaders that are like, oh, my team's, you know, 600 people. Oh, I have a 1500 person organization. That really messes with your framing on ultimately who you are, which is like, you are a human being in that organization. And yes, you have responsibility of all of those people, but you are not any different than them. You are mm -hmm. just as human, just as fallible, just as flawed as these people are. And if you mm -hmm. lose sight of that, then you hold yourself to a standard that is unattainable. And that Agreed. is a very dangerous precipice to be on. And we've all met leaders like that. Some of us have been led by leaders like that. Yeah, I I think there have been times in my career where I've let that mm -hmm. go. I'm by no means above anything that I teach or that I practice with leaders. You know, I'm a student of it just as much of, as them. And the times when I've lost sight of that, I've gotten myself into trouble. The times where I have let the accolades and recognition go to my head, I've gotten into trouble. I have to practice it daily. Mm -hmm. But from that point, you have a position of balance. You know, you're not riding the pendulum between I'm amazing, I'm the worst, I'm amazing, I'm the worst. You just are. Right. And you're doing your best. Yeah. And some days you get to see the the benefit of that and the impact. And some days you don't as much. But I much prefer to live in a place of, you know, equanimity and balance between those two and be able to embrace both of them than the pendulum swing that comes when you solely base your value on external validation. Correct. Which is how we're all conditioned. It's not our fault. It's how we're conditioned. Yes. So let me ask you this. I like to ask this question of people because I think that it sparks some curiosity for both of us in this conversation. But what is something that you believe that other people would think is insane? Oh, God. I'm, that was the one question on the list of questions I reviewed that I was like, that's a tough one. And actually, I had a meeting with my chief operating officer and asked her that question. And we both came to the realization is that what we teach, we think is common sense and it's not. So here's an example. You know, there's a family member of mine. She quit a job because her employer was taking advantage of her really like she was expecting her to work for free in many instances right and didn't invest in her professional development whatsoever and i remember when she started working for this employer i said so are they developing you like are they investing in your development it was a new position and there was an expectation that she would be learning a new skill set and so like what are they doing to help you and invest in you to help you learn that new skill set and she was just being position to be an observer and just watch, but they were never actually giving her opportunities to practice and put into application. And then I said, how come? And somebody in my family chimed up and said, well, it's because it costs so much money to do that, you know? And it's like, really, who actually does invest in their people? And that's such a rare thing and doesn't happen. And almost like it was the expectation is to be treated like shit when you're at work. And like, that was the conversation. I'm like, you know, that's not what I teach. And she goes, yeah, but you're not the norm. You're the anomaly. This is how the real world functions, Joanna. Profits and money always have the final say and everyone else's well-being or professional development or any other kind of career needs that they have or aspirations is not important. And the fact that I say we invest and support people, we want to maximize the human potential, we put people first, money will come. People look at me like I'm crazy. I got this feedback. I said, the best way to 
engage and inspire people is to value the experience that they have in they bring. And rather than just tell people what to always do, use a coach approach, pull from them the information that they have within them around how to deal with a challenge or a problem. Somebody told me that that's the wrong way to do it. When you're a leader, you have to tell somebody what to do. You've been put in this position to share your expertise and that they wouldn't value somebody who was pulling information from them. They thought that they would lose credibility. So I guess that's what people think is insane. When I tell people and I try to teach people a coach approach, pull information from people. You've hired them not because they're a blank slate. You've hired them because they come to this workforce with a lot of experience. You do a disservice to them when you don't tap into that or give them the opportunity to share it when you silence them, but always telling them what to do. So we teach a coach approach in our leadership programs. We're not teaching people to become executive coaches, but just use the methods or of coaching, powerful open-ended questions, and blend your directive and your non-directive communication styles to try and maximize the potential of everyone. People think that's insane. I've been getting some feedback like that. And I actually started to doubt myself. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't be teaching this stuff. And I'm like, no, this is the right way to do it. You know, there's so much research. I'm a researcher. Pull things out of the air and then teach it. There's so much research that goes into it. So it's funny. I take it for granted. And I think what we teach is the norm and it's common knowledge and everybody agrees with it. But no, a lot of people think that what we do and what we teach is insane. And as I'm I, saying it, I feel insane for saying it. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. And it's a bit crazy making because there is there is the research that actually proves that it is not insane and that it is highly be beneficial to organizations. But it's interesting, those in leadership positions that are wired to think, I need to demonstrate my expertise and how smart I am. And if I don't do that and ask you to show me what you're thinking, then I'm not adding value. That's a myth. To me, that is a crazy thing that other people think. Mm -hmm. that's true when in fact it's not you know mm -hmm. sometimes the smartest person in the room is the one who says nothing sometimes yes. the smartest person in the room asks one question and then doesn't say anything at all and allows the brilliance you know the collective wisdom of others to emerge you I know, think they, that's my fault as a leader I talk too much I need to listen more well we're all learning aren't we Joy? <laughs> you know we're all learning yeah. You know, one of the kind of the zeitgeist topics right now is about uh, retention, you know, the war for talent, right? I imagine that mm. comes up a lot for clients for you. And I'm like, curious to get your take on how you frame this for people when it comes up. But I always think about it's actually not at all the war for talent is about retention. It's about growth. If you invest in and grow your people and treat them with dignity and respect, they're not going to leave. Yeah, they may go to another organization because they're going to pay them more or because they want something that's diverse and different. But if you're paying them well and you're giving them opportunities to learn and grow in a safe environment, they will not leave because that's what people want. I actually gave a presentation yesterday. It was called the Women in Safety Summit. It was a national uh, summit across Canada for women who work in the safety industry. And I was one of the presenters and we're talking about addressing women's health issues by breaking the taboo. The case that I made was investing in people's well-being. So I have some research and statistics to back up what you're saying. Like, I love Gallup because Gallup does like international and they collect data international employee engagement in the state of the workplace. And they did a study and they looked at the top three things that employees want from their employers across the four generations. So the baby boomers are now leaving and retiring, Gen X, which is me, and then we have the millennials and Gen Z. And what they discovered, even though the top three things slightly differ from generation to generation, there's one thing that stays true in each generation. And what employees want is their employer to invest in their well-being. And millennials are willing to take a $7,600 pay cut to get it. So can you imagine making $7,000 less a year? What you would have to sacrifice, probably a vacation, which would 
increase your well-being, but you're willing to sacrifice that to work for somebody else who actually has a high give a shit factor about you, you know? And so what we're discovering now with the younger generation who's replacing the baby boomers and eventually replace us, the Gen Xers, they're willing to take less money to find fulfillment in their work and to work for somebody who cares about them. That's what I said in the presentation. If caring about your people and just the moral responsibility that you should feel for doing that doesn't speak to you, but dollars do, well, how does it feel when you lose an incredible talent because you haven't been taking care of them? Going to your competitors because it costs a lot of money to recruit and train, especially in law enforcement, eh? Like it could be up to $100,000 almost a person. You know how intense it is to put somebody through the recruitment process to become a police officer in Canada? It's, it's intense. It, a lot of money, a lot of time to just have them walk out the door after a year, two, three, five years. Like we did a study on retention for one organization. They had like a 30% turnover rate. That's per year. Oh my God. Millions of dollars, millions lost. And they didn't notice it. And they kept putting band-aids on. At yeah. the end of the day, when we did the research, to identify what they needed. They were screaming, take care of us. These are all the instances where you're, we don't feel like we're taking care of them. We feel like we're exposed to too much risk and that we won't go home safe at the end of the night. It fell on deaf ears. And they're still in the same hole that they're in now today. So there you go. I totally agree with what you're saying. That's the secret to retention is investing in their well-being, I think. Joanna, what do you think are some of the best practices around investing in well-being? I think over the years, we've seen different iterations of what that may look like. And now in the post-COVID time, you know, organizations are still grappling with what does it look like now? Yep. From your standpoint, what are the top two or three things that you think organizations should be thinking about or doing to address that? A lot of people, when I look at what they're doing, they always focus like on the big strategy that looks great on paper. But when mm -hmm. it comes to the interactions of people to people, it almost gets completely neglected. You know, I mean, the first thing is you have a good culture from the top down, those role models at the top, they're living the values, they really are, they're not hypocritical to that, because people who are in those frontline positions, middle managers, they look up and if they see, you know, hypocrisy at the top, they're not going to be encouraged to hold true to that culture that is only exists in name, you know? So definitely you have to take care of that and take a look at who your executives are and what they're doing every day. But at the end of the day, if I'm speaking to those middle managers, those frontline supervisors, like what they can do, we have actually a concept that's called creating a brave space. And we talk a lot about safe spaces and everybody thinks that safe spaces exist in our workplace and they truly don't. A safe space when you look at the definition of psychological safety, a safe space is when you can act and make a decision, speak up without the fear of being reprimanded. How many of us actually feel like that when we go to work every day, right? To challenge the system, quote, to give your boss feedback, to if you're a woman who's experiencing a miscarriage, it's a very real thing for my participants, to actually say, I need to go to the hospital, or I've been sexually harassed, or like these are extreme cases. Unfortunately, they happen more often than we want them to. But do you feel safe talking like that and knowing that people will not be freaked out about it, will be open about it? Not many of us have that safe space. So what I try to say is to leaders is like a brave space is when you speak up, even though you feel like you'll be judged for it, even though you feel like people won't understand it. So the first thing you need to do as a formal leader is to start role modeling that. So like Brene Brown, she's the vulnerability researcher. She talks about the power of building trust is by entrusting yourself to others. The small things you do, you decide how much you want to share and disclose. But even if you disclose a bit, 
people will feel like if they did it and nothing bad happened, because what a leader does is what is accepted. And so if they did it and it was accepted, then maybe they could do it. And then I would say, so role model it. And then the next thing you say is you actually talk about it. You're like, listen, it's not going to be easy to give your opinion, to give me feedback, to challenge the status quo, to share a health issue maybe you have. But if you choose to do so, I will listen to you and I will support you. And then when they do it, you recognize the behavior and you reward them for it. You don't let it fall on deaf ears. You don't penalize them for it. You recognize and you reward it. And then hopefully, if that happens enough time in one-on-one conversations, team-level conversations, through everyday behaviors and practices, you, you shift from a brave space to a safe space. People start trusting their colleagues. They start trusting their bosses. They start feeling like I can share more. And I worked in spaces like that where my boss was like, I'm having a hot flash, open the window. (laughs) We all laughed about it. And there was no stigma that she was getting older. So I've worked in these spaces, but it takes a lot of effort to get there, but not as much as you think. So at the same time, it takes courage within you, which is that brace space. It starts with you. Yes. And it can become a flywheel effect, right? As it begins, other people step into it and you create the space together. I would add one thing, which is consistency. Yes. When I see leaders try this and then the next day they're having a rough day, so they decide not to be vulnerable or not to share what's going on. That inconsistency can be very jarring for people. And then they don't know, is this authentic or is it manipulative? Absolutely. When, When you think about the recognition and awarding it, what, yes. I mean, this is a very tactical question, but what would you encourage people to do and say if someone stepped into that brave space? How yes. do you recognize that and reward it in a way that is meaningful? Can I give a personal example? I feel like those are the best ways to describe it or explain. Yeah. So I had an employee come to me. She was away. And while she was away, I was supporting her team and a big project landed in our laps and I had to figure out how we were going to deal with it in her absence. And well, she came back and she got feedback from her team that I probably could have handled it a bit better, that some of the decisions I made put them in undue stressful situations. And and so she shared that with me. And as she's sharing it with me, I was like, pissed off. I was like, who is she to give me this feedback? And I was like, John, don't do that. Listen, listen to her. And then I said to her, oh my God, how did it feel like to give me that feedback? And she said, oh, it was a bit hard. And I'm like, well, thank you for giving it. Like, ah, that couldn't have been easy. And I said to her, honestly, you know, when you started to share it with me, I was defensive. But then I listened to you and I realized you got a good point because everything they said that I did, I did do. And I did it because I was scared that we wouldn't deliver. And I didn't stay true to the way that I lead. They're right. I made mistakes. And so actually I thanked her. So I listened to her. I checked in with my defensiveness. I was aware that it was happening. I acknowledged it verbally. And then I congratulated her for doing it because it gave me the opportunity to work through. And I said, thank you. Keep doing this. This is what I'll do to fix it. Uh, that's another thing. People give you feedback. Yes. You can't just not do anything about it. You have to action it in some way. So uh, does that answer the question? Oh my gosh. It, it doesn't answer the question. <laughs> Excellent example. And thank you for the transparency there, Joanne. I like that. I think those types of stories, they resonate. We know what that's like on both sides, especially when we're defensive to check in and, and catch ourselves before we become defensive. You know, it's okay to have that initial reaction, but to you know choose what? that we respond. Right. And you know, Brene Brown said this, I was listening to her on a podcast. I'm like, that's a great way to think about defensiveness. She said, anytime you feel defensive, that's your unconscious bias kicking in. And so that should be the bell that rings anytime you get defensive, because it's hard to tell what an unconscious bias is. The whole point of it being unconscious is you don't know it exists. So how do you make an unconscious bias more conscious? And she goes, defensiveness could be an indicator that your unconscious bias is acting. So that could be the bell for you. Anytime you feel defensive, pause. Reflect on what the root cause of that. 
is it justified the defensiveness? Maybe it's not justified. Maybe it's entrenched in a belief that you have that is a wrong belief system. So obviously if you're being attacked and you're defensive, that's one thing. But I mean, like this was a good example where I was getting defensive and worked up and I'm like, whoa, 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 that my unconscious bias is like, I'm her boss and she's not supposed to talk to me like that. That's stupid. Don't think like that. So like, that's what was going on in my mind. So it helped me realize what my biases were that were in play and helped me suspend them so I could truly listen to her. Yeah. Oh, I wish I had that skill handy, you know, earlier. My <laughs> doesn't always work. Yeah, it doesn't always work. <laughs> Joanna, thank you so much. Where can the people listening learn more about you, your company and the amazing work you're doing in the world? Thank you. Yeah. So my company name is Sinogap Solutions. It's my last name spelled backwards. So first thing, like connect with me on LinkedIn, Joanna Pagonis, because all the information about my company, who we are, what we do is there. Anytime that we post any new things that we're doing, we do it on LinkedIn. But obviously our website, Sinogap Solutions, visit us there. Obviously we do customized leadership development programs and we do organizational consulting, but we also have an online academy. We have a, a whole bunch of online self-paced courses focused on leadership development, resiliency, creating brave spaces. We teach the coach approach in these courses. So if you want to invest in your own professional development and you want something that's at a reasonable price point, check out our online course catalog because we have a lot that we can offer you. Fantastic. Oh, and we have the podcast, the Creating Brave Spaces podcast. So please listen to that too. We dive into the concepts in the online course. We want to give back and offer information that's free. So check us out, listen to our podcast. Fantastic. Joanna, thank you so much. This has been a, a fantastic conversation and have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Leadership Mind. Remember, the mind is the connection between our being and doing, our intent and our actions. Make sure to visit our website, MassimoBacchus.com, where you can like and subscribe to the show on Spotify, Anchor FM, and Apple, so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found the episode valuable, please rate the podcast on your preferred platform or share it with your community. Until next week, remember to lead with compassion, curiosity, and gratitude. Great leadership is a gift.